Well, good morning. Starting a new series, so I'm going to just start out by asking you some questions um, to think about these statements, whether they're true or false. Are they assumptions that you would agree with or not? Life is suffering. True or false? Well, this is the first of Buddha's famous Four Noble Truths. In fact, it's what he builds much of the rest of those truths upon as he looks at life. It's implied that life without suffering is impossible, and therefore the only way to escape life, uh, to escape suffering, is to escape life. As he looked at life, he saw that, that birth occurred with suffering, and there was suffering of illness, there was suffering of anxiety and mental anguish, and there was suffering in, in aging, and there was suffering in death. And he just said, you know, it seems to be that life is suffering. And from that, he began to say, well, how do you then escape suffering? Vishal Mangalwadi, it's a tough name to say, but he is a, uh, one, one of the Christian, um, foremost Christian intellectuals in India. And he makes a statement as he looks at his culture and he, he understands this statement, life is suffering, this assumption which most of them live with. He says, one sad result of the enlightenment that came from these four truths has been that much of the energy of my culture has gone into pursuing religious techniques for finding nirvana, which is escape from life, rather than escaping sin and and somehow fighting suffering. As a result of that assumption. Here's another one that I ask you to think about for a second that sometimes is on the, the, the foundation of what someone might believe. Evolution is a fact of science. It's kind of a loaded question, right? Because you might be thinking, well, you know, there's parts of it, I agree. But evolution, I mean in the, in the pure sense that there is not a creator. There are some who say is a fact of science, true or false. There's obviously a lot of question around that. In fact, there's a the movie that I guess is out right now called Expelled. Anybody see that? Well, there's some hands. There's people who have seen it. Um, you can go to uh, Don Byerly has a class on creation and evolution. There's Dembski and a number of other writers who speak about intelligent design and other things such as that that talk about the fact that there can be a creator. How about this one? Equal respect should be given to all moral and metaphysical ideas. Equal respect should be given to all moral and by metaphysical, I mean the idea, the nature of reality, the ideas you have around that should all be given equal respect. Discipling nations, a man named Daryl Miller writes, in our world today, tolerance means showing equal respect to all moral and metaphysical positions and ideas. However, tolerating false ideas and evil practices can be a wickedness and cruelty. It may not be wise to tolerate all, he says. Surely the professors and writers who propagated Nazism deserve to be critiqued and condemned. It is possible that maybe not all are, are equal. Let me give you one more. Healing is possible today. True or false? Healing is possible today. There are some who believe that in the word of God, we're, we're told that at the end of the life of Jesus and the life of the early church, the gifts that were of signs that, that where God intervened through miracles and wonders and where he came in gifts of healing and things such as that, it ceased at that time. And there's some who believe that. That's an assumption that they live with. Who's right? The above are what I call all assumptions about how the world works, and some are consciously held and sometimes they're unconsciously held. And this morning what I want you to do is to work with me for the first part of the service. This is different. I haven't preached a message like this before. But I want you to stay with me in this first point of the message, and then it'll kind of move a little bit easier. You'll track with it, I think, more. But I'm asking you to work hard because 
I want us to look hard and critically at what we believe. Not what we say we believe or even think we believe. But I want you to take in this time to critically say, what do I truly believe? The values that I hold and do those values and those beliefs really evidence themselves by the way I live? I'm asking you to think in a sense about your worldview. What is your view of the world? What is the view of the world of those around you? It's good to know that. It's good to know how you see the world and the assumptions you hold and then also know the assumptions of those who have a view of the world around you because we all do. And no one, I don't think anyone has it exactly the same. What is, in a sense, as we look at this over the next few weeks, this series called The Spirit Life, what is a biblical view of the world? What does it mean when Jesus would talk about the kingdom has come and and the life in the realm of the spirit is around those who are open to see it and willing to walk in that? What does that mean for us and for you? I'm asking you to think hard about how Jesus saw the world. And since he called us to be followers of him, I want you to think how closely do you follow him? And do you see the world as he saw it through his eyes, which he said he saw through the eyes of the father and was led by the Holy Spirit? So what I want to do first is define what we mean by a worldview. And here's the part where I ask you just to stay with me a little bit. When I say, what's your worldview, what do I mean? I have my notes here. Have a few people take a stab at it. You won't. Okay. Another way of asking this is, what lens do you see the world through? What beliefs do you hold that you use to interpret the world? Every one of us, through the, the situation where we've been raised, the things within our family life, the places we've been taught and educated, um, the world that we lived in, the culture that we grew up in, whether South, North, European, America, we all have lenses by which we see the world and we interpret the world. We all have, in a sense, glasses that we have that cause us to look at how the world works, how life works, how we relate to one another. With that, we have assumptions, and and through that, we live out this world in our life. There's a definition by this man, Daryl Miller, in a book called Discipling Nations. And And he says a worldview is a set of assumptions held consciously or unconsciously in faith about the basic makeup of the world and how the world works. It's basically, in a sense, the theory of the world that you have and for living in the world, your beliefs, your values, and and then how those influence your behavior and how you interpret things. A worldview is a set of assumptions held consciously or unconsciously about the basic makeup of the world and how the world works. And there's a number of elements that I want you to pay attention to. First is a set of assumptions. Those presuppositions are truths that you consider to be an accurate view of how the world works and how life works. There's a second thing that he says, consciously and unconsciously believe. This is a very important thing because we all have conscious beliefs, but many of us have unconscious beliefs that really in many ways will drive us and move us forward. The things that we sometimes say or we think or hold opinions that we hold are not necessarily the ones that really drive us and move us. My daughter sent me something and it basically um, was this kind of test that, that, that caused you to think about your, your biases, your unconsciously held beliefs, your prejudices or prejudgments it's called the implicit association test and it measures prejudices towards two things both race and gender and i remember as we had a conversation about this she asked me do you think you have any prejudice towards it and i thought you know i don't really have any i think i'm a pretty you know unprejudiced person with regard to race and with regard to gender well she said well you're willing to take the test i said sure and and i did 
The introduction before taking the test, and I, I put the link up there if anyone wanted to see it, but the introduction before taking the test states this. This is what I read before reading, before taking it. When it comes to gender and racial equality, most people know what their opinions are. But what about unconscious attitudes and associations? Would you be surprised to learn, for example, that you unconsciously favor one gender or racial group over another? The test you are about to take, it says, known as the implicit association test, offers one way to probe unconscious biases. And then it says, warning. This test has been taken more than a million times and results usually reveal some degree of bias. Your test results will include interpretations based on research. If you would rather not read these interpretations or risk discovering hidden biases, please do not continue. I thought, oh, yeah, right. I was thinking about this as well as as we go through this series and we talk about the life of the spirit, about living in the spirit, this realm of the spirit, the kingdom of God that, 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 that Jesus talked about. In some ways, you almost want to say warning because this could really mess up some ways in your own life. The way you've seen the world and what you think of the world. Your worldview, he says, is a set of assumptions consciously or unconsciously believed about the basic makeup of the world and how it works, about how it works. Your worldview, then, is a lens you wear to see the world, beliefs, ideas that determine what you see and how you interpret what you see. It's the things with regard to how, when you face conflict, what was it that you were taught about conflict? Do you avoid it? Do you run to it? You know, what are the different things with regard to conflict? The role of women or the role of men? And, and what were you taught and what was your understanding as you grew up? It's all these kind of things. It's about how you get in with people. All these things, he said, make up our worldview. Let me ask you a question. How many of you know Mother Goose or have heard of Mother Goose? Yeah, see, there's a lot of Mother Goose readers here. I say this because I remember at one point um, someone sharing this, and it's kind of stuck with me, uh, around this whole idea of how you see the world. There is a, a little poem. It goes, Pussycat, Pussycat. You know this one? Where have you been? I've been to London to visit the Queen. Pussycat, Pussycat, what did you do there? I chased a little mouse right under the chair. Some versions say a frightened, I frightened a little mouse under her chair. And it was amazing when I looked into this, all the things around this little poem. I thought it would be longer. It wasn't. You're probably thinking, well, what's, what's the big deal here? I want you to catch this. This cat goes to London and is asked what he sees. I mean, he goes to Buckingham Palace filled with all the glitter and gold. He goes by the royal guard who has all the red, um, bright you know, red and, and the, the way they would march and walk. He approaches the queen. On her royal throne, surrounded, surrounded with all this royal elegance and splendor. And you ask the cat what the cat sees. And what does the cat see? A mouse. Now that, I go, you know, that's why? With all that other stuff. Because cats are inclined to see mice, right? They grow up thinking about mice. It's natural to what cats do. They're familiar in the world of the cat. And a cat goes and doesn't see anything else but sees mice. That's in a real sense, that's what happens by the nature of who we are, by what we become familiar with, by, by who we are. What we see in life is often shaped by those very same things. So I ask in a sense, are you aware of your bias, your unconscious and conscious assumptions, the lenses that you use in which you see the world? And let me ask you this. How often does it actually match up with what the Bible has to say in the view of reality that Jesus presented? In the way that you live, 
and the way you think. Did you know that much of what Jesus did when he taught was to get people beyond what they said they believed and thought they believed so that they would actually be able to see what God saw? I mean, that's what Jesus was often about. He was he was trying to tell people, hey, guess what? There is this world that you live in, but there is this kingdom of God, this realm of the spirit, this place where God lives that you can live with him. And as you enter into that, you see life, you experience life, you know life in ways that are really different from maybe what you've grown up understanding. Did you know that the Bible can do the same thing? When you approach the word of God and you ask the word of God to kind of speak to you, not through the lenses you have, but through the Holy Spirit, you say, I just come with a humble heart. I really want to understand you, God. I want to understand how you see this world. I want your view of reality to match up with mine. Well, if that's what a worldview is, and and that's what I think Jesus came to help people have an understanding of the world as God himself sought and as Jesus himself actually lived it, I want to ask you to kind of discover how a worldview works. Okay, I'm going to give you, here's where I think it might get easier to follow, okay? Turn in Acts, if you would, to Acts 28, verses 1 through 6. I just want to explain to you how a worldview works here. And what I think is interesting, if you look at Acts 28, verses 1 through 6, you have to note that this is Luke, who's the writer, and it's his account of Paul's experience on the island of Malta. And what I want you to note is that it is a first-hand account by Luke. Luke was an actual witness to this. And you need to understand that Luke was a well-trained doctor. He was trained in the best university of the time. It was he was trained in the Harvard of his day. So he was the kind of person who had the lenses on because of some of his training and his teaching. He understood the medical world. He understood how those things worked. So he's not writing from some other perspective. He's writing from what he has grown up and understood and what he's been taught. And as he as he writes this, he begins, he says, once safely on shore. And and you have to understand why he says safely on shore. What they were doing is Paul and Luke and a number of his followers had had in in Jerusalem and they had been taken um, to the courts and they were going to be put on prison there in that land of of Judea. And and the Pharisees were going to put him on court. And he as a as a Roman citizen, Paul appealed to his Roman citizenship. And he said, I do not want to stand trial here. But he said, I'd like to stand trial in Rome as a Roman citizen. So he was now being deported from that land on his way to Rome. He was on a ship, and on that ship there came about a storm. And that storm came at a certain point. Paul had a revelation from God as everyone was afraid they were going to die. And Paul said, he gave him specific instructions of what to do. And he he said, if you follow this, not one person will be lost in the midst of a storm. The ship breaks apart, and all the, the people on the ship somehow land on this island, as Luke is reporting it, once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood. And as he put it on the fire, a viper driven out by the heat fastened itself on his hand. And when the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, Ah, this man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects, and the people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said, 
He was a God. Now, I just want you to notice the response of these islanders from Malta. They live with what I call primitive worldview. They live with this idea that spirits invade everything and that there are spirits that, that are in nature that they can't control. In fact, that they're at the whim of nature. So when a storm comes through, the gods are angry, right? That kind of thing. And so here's their first reaction if you look at verse 4. Verse 4, they, they see the snake attached to Paul's wrist. And here's what they assume. This is the lens by which they see the world. Paul must be guilty as charged. They know he's a prisoner because they were probably rounding all the prisoners up and getting them together and getting them to do work. So they know he's a prisoner. And in their view of the world, cause and effect, a man bound, tried, a criminal, bit by a snake, must be guilty. Bad things happen to bad people. A person in, in that culture in that day who is doing something wrong, if something bad happens to him, it's obvious that the gods are against him. So that they, in their mind, they reason the gods tried to get him in the sea, but they couldn't get him there, so they put him on land, and now they got him. And you know what? Justice is being served. Divine vengeance is occurring as it should, because bad people are going to have bad things happen to them. Now, I want you just to note their second reaction. So that doesn't happen because Paul stands up. He doesn't swell up. He doesn't fall over. He doesn't die. What's their next reaction? Waiting for him to fall over. They change their mind. and They go, wow, this guy's got to be a God. You see, they had a firm belief in the supernatural. They understood from their primitive worldview that if this guy didn't die, then he must be a God himself greater than those others. Now, that's an interesting view of the world, right? Some interesting assumptions to make. What I want you to do is take a look at how our contemporary world would view this. I want you to think about what a scientific, mechanistic, rationalistic group of people trained within Western civilization would think about this very same event as you saw it happen before your eyes. There was a shipwreck on Lake Minnetonka. No, anyway, um... What would a normal contemporary person's response be? I think we would go, ouch, bad luck for that guy. Now we'll never know whether he's guilty or not, right? We wouldn't assume immediately that he's guilty. We would just think rationalistically, you know what? We'll just never know now. Or maybe the next reaction, what would it be? When you see him standing there, he hasn't fallen over and he hasn't died. In a, in a very rationalistic, scientific, mechanistic worldview that we hold here within Western civilization, our second reaction would be, wow, what a lucky break. And we have these common sense theories that fit scientific, rationalistic understanding. It must have been an old snake with some pretty diluted venom, right? Good deal that the old snake got him. Or we might think something like this. You know what? I can't believe it didn't fall over. It must have been a defective snake. You know, one of those uh, rare hereditary diseases that the snake had called venomous sterility. It's not really a category, but anyway, something like that. You know, no doubt this snake's progeny will never make the evolutionary chain of, of survival of the fittest because it just doesn't have venom. That's what you would reason. 
A third thing you might say is, you know what, at some point in Paul's life, he must have built up some antibodies. In fact, he had an, an immune system that, was, that is not um, is prone to that poison or is able to overcome that snake's venom. I mean, those would all be what the kind of views that we would have of the world today if we saw that happen. We wouldn't be like the primitive ones going, wow, he got his just desserts. And then, oh, man, that's a, he's got to be a god. No, we would be standing there very much going... How do we explain this naturally? Right? Well, here's Luke. He writes the story. Luke's a medical doctor. Luke understands this stuff. Luke looks at this and he goes, you know what? It's Paul lives in the realm of the Spirit. He's got a God who personally intervenes and acts and moves and, and does things that only God can do. This isn't about him being some kind of God. This isn't about some kind of cause and effect, just, reward, just re, deserve a reward. This is not about some guy who had come along some snake that didn't have any venom or some guy who has some antibodies. This is about a God who intervenes and does miracles, who does his work because he has a plan for Paul's life. And he has a plan for you and for me as a result of these people's lives because he wants to move and will move in those situations where he chooses it's wise to move. Now, that's a different view of the world. That's what is called a biblical worldview. That's a, that's a view that Jesus came and he talked about the kingdom of God, this kingdom that, that brings in love for one another and moves into that place that also brings in a love for God who can intervene and do miraculous things, even saving the life of someone who has a snake who has been bit by it and doesn't die. Now, I want to describe very briefly three what I call primary worldviews, because it's important that you understand this. And let me just say, when you look at worldviews of people today, we are living in a time where there is probably more confusion and less integration of worldviews than I think in any time in history. People can hold to certain things with regard to a worldview that don't have to consistently match. In fact, we all do anyway. It's, it's silly for us to even think that we all have this very aligned worldview. We don't. But even more so in our culture today. Let me just share with you. There is what I call kind of a primitive view of the world or animistic. And it views reality as essentially spiritual. All reality is essentially spiritual. The physical world in some ways is an illusion. Something that you're to pass through or to pass by. In a sense, there's a consciousness that we live with. And this consciousness is to, in a sense, overcome the physical plane and get in touch with and connected to this spiritual reality, which is above all. You can, and I'm, I'm simplifying things here in a major way. If I was in a philosophy class, I'd be just killed right now, okay? But just for the sake of simplification, this primitive worldview says that everything is spiritual. It's, it's very much what comes from an Eastern worldview today. It's what New Age, in some ways, is about. It's what Star Wars is, if you watch Star Wars. You know, Star Wars is a very interesting worldview because it's this, it's this fight of good and evil, and it's kind of a neat thing, good and evil, but the reality is what the person is seeking to do is in, their, in some way with their consciousness, get in touch with this higher consciousness, this force, and this force, if you're in touch with this good force, will overcome the evil. There is what I would also call what I, what I call a secular um, worldview. It sees reality as ultimately being just physical. 
It's what's often known as, with regard to an atheistic, there is no God. Everything, everything is physical. This is a physical being. We have been given minds evolutionarily. We have grown in such a way that we have conquered more and more. But really, there's nothing spiritual beyond it. We're just a physical universe with physical things going on. And in some ways, I would, I would even say there's this, this idea that if you want to say it's just not physical, there are some who will say there is a transcendent God. Some will say there's a, it's called deism. There's a God who's up there who took like a watch and he made it and he, he, he wound it up and he, and he doesn't do anything to intervene. He just lets it unveil. And in a very, very similar way, there's a spiritual realm, but it doesn't interact in any way with this physical realm. And I have to say a lot of times a lot of believers live that way. But there's a third view, and it's the view that Jesus brought, and it's the view that the Bible talks about. It's the view that um, this view of reality is that there is really a spiritual reality and there is this physical reality. What is ultimate beyond it is a spiritual reality. But God has created this physical reality. It is good. It holds the fact that God exists. He created and he actually intervenes with his creation because here's the simple, most important thing to recognize about this. This God, this spiritual being is a personal God. Underline that personal. Reality is ultimately personal. It's not about being a force connected to Something. It's about a personal being who relates to personal beings that he's created, who are both spiritually and physical beings, is what we are. So I'm going to ask you, do you live according to the, to the view of the world that Jesus brought, according to what the Bible seems to say? And I want to warn you again, be careful, because even in reading the Bible, you have lenses. But do you live according to what Jesus, that's probably the easiest place to say it, the way that Jesus lived and the way that he saw this world and how it worked. In doing this, it will require that you have to examine and sense, how do I view the world? It will mean taking implicit association tests, so to speak, with regard to your own spiritual understanding of things. Saying, God, I want to understand my biases, my prejudgments, the things that I have kind of grown up with that don't match your reality. There is a sense that not only do I not want to know my worldview, but God, I want to be a humble and gracious and loving person. And I want to understand the worldviews of others. Not that I go to condemn them. Not that I try and go and say, boy, you're really wrong in, in that sense. But that you lovingly understand them because in understanding their worldview, there's going to be opportunities where if you do see things that are true and right, your truth with love can make a difference in their life. As a follower of Jesus, you must be committed to consciously follow the way of Jesus. Repenting of false views of reality, embracing God's reality as Jesus lived and as he modeled it. Asking God's Holy Spirit to help make conscious your unconscious ideas and values and to help you live in line with those ideas and values that Jesus presented. Do you know the closer your beliefs are to what is ultimate reality and not the way you imagine it or the way you were taught it, but the closer your your actual views are to the reality that Jesus lived, the closer you will live in real life and blessing. There is a view of the world that Jesus introduced. It's a view from heaven 
or one from the realm in which the spirit of God lives and rules. Jesus invited us to live in this world. He invites us into this realm of the spirit. Jesus calls us to see this life and this world from that realm. And he actually prays for us to do so. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. What? That on earth, just as it is where? He says in a sense, would you allow heaven to invade this earth? Would you recognize the fact that there is this realm of the spirit that believers are called to live in? And that's the view from that, from that place we're called to see the world and we're called to live. Jesus calls us to the spirit life. And I just ask you, how determined are you to, to say, God, I want to see the world like you do, Jesus. I want to see it how your son, father, sees it. Are you willing to match your lens with the lens of God, with his word, with revelation? Because Jesus said the truth will set you free. That's another way of saying the closer you get to living in the ultimate reality of the way God has made it, the more you'll experience just life the way it should be. I want you to conclude by looking at the end of chapter 28, because it's very interesting, because you have to ask yourself what else happened on Malta that day or those few days. It says in verse 7, there was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and for three days entertained us hospitably. Here is Paul the criminal who has this incredible thing happen. It's obvious that Paul is a man of some stature and influence and charisma because they are invited in. And Paul, in some ways, must be sharing his view of reality to the people around him. So much so that it says in verse 8, this chief official of the island, his father was sick in bed. An older man was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Now, here's Paul living out his understanding of the realm of the spirit in living in the will of the father. He is a man who says, I am in touch with Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus prompts me, I will do what he calls me to do. This is a worldview that's different than most people live with. Most people live with a rationalistic mindset where they say, well, I figure it out, then I'll do it. They don't understand what faith is. Faith is ultimately being connected to a loving God who loves you, who is in touch with you, who wants to walk with you and has given you his Holy Spirit and his word so that as you understand his word and it begins to help you see how to live, it also allows you to be in touch with the spirit. So the spirit at times will come and prompt you and intervene in situations. And sometimes it may not even be a prompting, but you know, because of the world that God has given you, that you act in faith and the spirit acts so that Paul says, as it says in here, went to in to see this man's father and after prayer placed his hands on him and he healed him. How many of you live with that worldview? How many of you, when you are at someone's house and you hear that someone is ill, say, you know what, I'd, I'd just like to go pray for him and just pray for healing. I'm not saying that the person's going to be, I'm just saying I'm challenging our worldview. I'm challenging our understanding of what you read in the Word of God and what you see sometimes lived out here. Is it possible that in situations, if you open your heart, that you might hear and you might see or you might experience a prompting of God to do some things in faith that don't seem always safe, that stretch you, 
He goes on and he says, as a result of what God did here, it wasn't what Paul did, but as a result of God, Paul's obedience and his prayer and this, this man was healed. It says what, when this happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. And they, were, they honored us in many ways. And when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with supplies that we needed. That's just a different view of the world. You see, every day there, there are opportunities presented to us. God presents opportunities for us to adjust our lens. And I'm not just talking about healing in that sense or the, the miraculous. I'm talking about simple things like as Jesus stood before a bunch of harried and tired and exhausted crowd of people. He stands before him and he says to him, look at the birds. Do you see them worrying about what they're going to eat? And then probably a nice spring day, look at the flowers. You see them blossoming, coming up, and how well-dressed they are of God. What's your view? What's your lens of God? Do you see this God who loves you and who is going to provide for you and he's going to care for you? Or do you live your life worried and harried and, and, and upset? Is your lens matched to the way Jesus presented God? I just, I mean, I have to confess it isn't mine, but it's my desire. It's my desire, and I pray it would be your desire as well, that as you live this life, you begin to say, you know, God, you've called me to walk in peace, to choose peace, to not live in anxiety. Because guess what? Jesus saw you, Father, as one who would take care of us. Some of you may have a different kind of a worldview as well. To a group of people who were frightened, they were, t- they were trying to measure up to God. They were shame-filled, and they were the kind of people who had blown it big. Jesus looks at these people who feel like there's no way God in any way would want anything to do with them. And he looks at these people, and he says, let me tell you a couple stories. Let me tell you first about a story about the shepherd. He had, he had 100 sheep, and in fact, there was 99, but one was lost. And guess what he did? Here's the view. Here's the lens I want you to see of the Father and the way this world works. This one sheep that who you would think, well, why would he go after? He goes after. He searches. He does everything he can to find it. In fact, let me tell you another story. There's a woman, an older widow, who has this kind of um, engagement kind of bracelet or necklace that she wore. And on it were these coins special to her. And she had lost one of them. And she went through her whole house and took out everything looking for that one little coin. That, he says, is how God loves you. Or maybe think of this guy who is a, he's a father and he has two sons and one of the sons just rebels and says, forget it, I'm going to live my life the way I want to. And he walks off on his own. What's your view of the father if you've done that? If you said, God, I don't really care. You've blown it and you've walked away and you're here today and you're just wondering, could God love me? Jesus says, you know what the view of the father is? The father is standing at the edge of the property every day looking to see if the son will come back. That's how much he loves you. I just want us to to look at God's word, especially as we start to look at this realm of the spirit. And what does it mean as we look in the next week about angels? And and it says in the word of God about angels and fallen angels. And what does this look like? And is this really a part of the reality that we live with? Do we understand that that's even true today? I think God just says every day there's an opportunity for every one of us to take God's word, to listen to God's spirit, and to realign our lenses to see the world the way God sees it and recognize we'll never probably see it perfectly in this life, right? But we all have the opportunity every day to allow God by his spirit to help us see it more clearly. We've been given his word. And if you, if you just don't take much time in his word, you won't be informed by this kind of worldview. 
You know, quiet times are not about trying to get in, in, in good graces with God. They're really about setting aside time on a regular basis where you pray, you quiet your heart, and you say, God, I want to still my life so that I can get in touch with the way this world really is, the way that you have made it, and that I can live in it that way. I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to close. I'm going to ask you to bow your head, and just in this moment, there may be a place you're saying, God, I just want to kind of align more fully my eyes with your eyes. I want my heart to be more connected to your heart. Some of you may be wrestling with anxiety and worry, and and you just need to see again this God who loves you so deeply and who will care for you. He will provide. Some of you may come today and you just feel like, boy, I've blown it. I just and I just feel like, how can I enter into this again? And God's saying he just loves you like he loves that lamb. He's he he wants to be in relationship with any person who just recognizes their need. Some of us, he's saying, you know, it's time to to quit being safe and to start to risk and to start to listen to the spirit and to in faith act and move and to do some things so that God can move. Lord. That's our desire as a body. That our eyes as a people, as one body here, our eyes might become more closely aligned with you and our heart more closely aligned with you, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you. Have a great day.